How about if I check the sound? That sounds good to me. Is that good to you? A little low? <laughs> Should I turn it up? Okay. Well, this uh, first part of this talk, I really contemplated doing it in silence, but I changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk about a sutta that I really, really like, feel kindred spirit with it. It's it's about, I think it was a deva, named uh, Rohitasa. And um, so Rohitasa, I mean, uh, uh, if you read the sutta sometimes, you can see that the Buddha, he had people like you and me, householders, that would come and sit there and talk to him and ask him practice questions. And he had uh, really famous people, you know, uh, politicians, great spiritual leaders would come and ask him practice questions. And he had Davis that would come and ask him practice questions. It was kind of a strange thing because you would think a Deva, you're in the godly realm. <laughs> Do you really need to ask the practice question? But they did. They needed to, they, just like you and I, would come to try to understand how to be free. And Buddha was the being that could tell people how to do it. It's kind of a weird phenomena that uh, he could tell people how to do it, how to be free, even devas. And so Rohitasa, I guess they the devas would come... Uh, three o'clock in the morning, I guess, because they would come late at night. They call it the extreme of the night. And whenever I come to retreat centers, I'm very afraid of the dark, just, you know, from childhood. And so I come to retreat centers and at night, it's like pitch black outside. And, and the Buddha would be sitting in the, what's called Jetta's Grove in Ananda Pindaka's monastery. And he would be sitting in pitch black place. There's no lights. Not like here where there's a little bit of light. There's no light. And he would be sitting there comfortably, probably waiting for the next David to come. <laughs> and then Rohitasa comes it says that he his radiance was so bright that it lit up the whole Jeddah's Grove. So all of a sudden, this being would show up. And this is what he said, standing there, talking to the Buddha. He said, is it possible by traveling 
to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. He's basically asking, is there a way that I can get past suffering? That's what I think he's asking, just like we do. And so the Buddha says, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. When I think of this idea of reappearing, just think of those thoughts that you have had of some moment in time that has reappeared ever since you've been on this retreat. That's what he's trying to get away from. How do I get away from that constant coming back, coming back? So, of course, when he hears the Buddha say, it is not possible, he is, this is amazing. Great, it's awesome. How well it has been said by the Blessed One, I tell you, friend, that it is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. He says that he was a sky traveler, some sort, whatever that is, but his speed was so fast that he was well-trained, practiced, sharp. He was just like a... He could move like an arrow flying through the air. He could he had this capacity. And he, his, he could move from, like, uh, like he was so gigantic that he could walk, his stride could go from one coast to the other coast. He lived a hundred years and he could walk, uh, I mean, he lived a hundred lifetimes. And so he kept going, trying to get to the end of the cosmos his whole life, all of these lifetimes, all of these years that he lived. Do you think of a a God that's like immortal? So he's like living, 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 and trying his best to get away from difficulty. He said that he practiced and tried this for so long that he didn't do anything except to eat, Drink, chew, taste, urinate, and defecate. Just in case you didn't know that Davis urinated and defecated. They do. (laughs) And he would uh, sleep only to fight off the weariness. That's it. He was like diligent. But no matter how much he put into this, he still could not uh, reach the end of the cosmos, his suffering. He couldn't reach the end of it. So he says, it's amazing, it's awesome that you say that to me. Because what I think he felt in that moment was, what you going to do? This is it. You can't reach the end of it. I've tried. I'm the best. If I can't do it, nobody can do it. So he's like basically ready to go because he has been vindicated. He really, it's almost like when you have some place in your life that's really miserable, 
It's been a mess your whole life. You have struggled against it your whole life. And someone says, yes, you are a victim. You were harmed. You were hurt. That was wrong. And he is vindicated. And pretty much, I think at that moment, he thought, it's a done deal. But the Buddha then realized that based on what he was saying, this, oh, it's awesome. It's great. Thank you. He says, I tell you, friend, that is not possible by traveling to know or see or reach the far end of the cosmos where one does not take birth, age, die, pass away, or reappear. But at the same time, I tell you that there is no making an end of suffering and stress without reaching the end of the cosmos. Yet it is just within this fathom-long body with its perceptions and intellect that I declare that there is the cosmos, the origination of the cosmos, the cessation of the cosmos, and the path of practice leading to the cessation of the cosmos. And what I think he was telling Rahitasa is, there is an end to all of this. And you cannot get there by traveling. There is some other way that we get there, but you do have to get there if you plan on ending suffering, or you will travel with suffering forever. So in a way, he kind of like said, you know, if you've been struggling with some difficulty, that he said, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that was bad, whatever that was that happened to you. And uh, you can't undo that bad. But if you don't undo it, you will be suffering with it for the rest of your natural days. It will not stop. And I think the first time I heard this sutta is probably the first time I began to rethink anger. I heard it at a retreat one time. Because Rohita says, sounds like me. So I want to talk about the five aggregates. But the five aggregates is a boring subject. (laughs) I got to be honest with you. It's boring. It's difficult to talk about. So I thought the best way to talk about it would be to talk about it from the framing of how angry I have been in my life, this angry person. So I grew up, and uh, I had a lot of anger. And so with that anger, I grew up in a household with angry parents. I didn't think they were abusive or bad or anything like that. They were strict. They were mean at times. But, you know, they were mom and daddy. That's just the way it is. This is the way we live. And... I had a lot of siblings, and a lot of my siblings had different labels, but my label was the angry one. That's what I was. And I had a lot of, you know, proof. I did a lot of yelling and cussing and throwing of things. You know what angry people do. 
So when I got older, I found out that my parents were pretty dysfunctional and pretty abusive. And so I spent the next vast portion of my life trying to fix, heal, make right the angry one. That's a bad one. I don't want to be that one. I want to be the nice one, the good one. I don't want to be the angry one. So I just started spending a whole gob of money trying to fix and make this person not the angry one. And when I came to the Dhamma, I pretty much came to the Dhamma with the same mindset. That's what the Dhamma was supposed to do, fix the angry one so I wouldn't be that way. Because as you start getting older and you live in your own life, my parents' ways were not my way. I didn't want to be like that. So I suspect I'm not the only one in the room with this difficulty of the label we were given, either by society or some group of people. And the more I started practicing, I did get softer. I did get nicer. I did get into this kind of uh, more generous way. But I could never sort of shake this angry one. I mean, I'm still the angry one. I'm just a nicer angry one, but I'm still the angry one. Because that's who I am. And my identity began to get complicated. It began to get complicated because the more you practice, the more you see feel, be into, the more you recognize the, 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 our Juan's uh, person, Juan uh, Jimenez, he says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit and whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I'm indoors, the one who remains standing when I die. I begin to see this one. And it's kind of awkward seeing this one, and yet I am the angry one. And this conflict we begin to run into when we're practicing. Very difficult kind of place to be at. And because on one hand, you can see the harm and difficulty of our conduct. And yet I am, I am this one. So how could this one be that one at the same time? I um the room you can feel very still, soft. It's quiet. And I think that we are, this realm that we get into in retreat, no one person in this room created this. It's sort of this combined effort of practice. But when the room, 
when the sinner, when our world, both internal and external, our cosmos, begins to get quiet, softer, stiller, I consider us being in the realm of wisdom. We are in the realm of being able to see something, make sense of something, understand something that we cannot understand, conceptualize in our ordinary minds. Because the reason why I could not not undo the angry one is because that is a thing. It's a self. It's an object just like this. How am I going to say this is not here when I'm holding it? So here I would be in this realm trying to practice making the angry one better. But I got to be the angry one to do that. It's not possible. This complicated mind cannot let go of the angry one. And I cannot step into, I am this one. I cannot do that. That is the problem. This is what I think the Buddha tried to point to with the five aggregates. There's a way that we can begin to, I think, uh, move from one to the other. So the biggest problem with the five aggregates, I think, is because somehow it feels like uh, I am invalidating my history, my past, who I am, my internal being, my sense of self. And there is a way in which we need to begin to move, but in this realm of wisdom, we're kind of like in the stream, and we can see some possibilities that we wouldn't have been able to see before. So let me tell you a little bit about um, what the five aggregates are, kind of a little here. The Buddha used this word, the five aggregates is an English interpretation of the khandhas. I don't know a lot about Pali, and I'm not, like, I don't study it as much, but the khandhas is a weird thing that Buddha would do these things that uh, he would take very common words and completely change the relationship with it. So this word khandhas was a commonly used word, and it meant like a heap, a mass, um, a pile, a bundle of something, you know, a pile of stuff right there, a pile of clothes, a heap of, you know, dirt, things like that. That's what it was, just a very common word that people would use. And he took that word and he associated it with this uh, sense of self, this almost like beginning to see that we are a pile, a heap of stuff that creates the self. 
By doing that, I think what he began to do was to help people disentangle themselves with this heap of stuff. And that's what I hope I can show you over the course of the talk, that I had to disentangle myself from this idea that I am an angry person. And in this realm of stillness and silence, we can see that I am not that. I am this one. We can see that. But it takes the silence in for us to actually begin to see how to disentangle that. So these five aggregates are form, this body, you could say, is a form, feeling tones, pleasant, unpleasant, neither pleasant, unpleasant. We've been feeling those all the time. Um, mental formations. I'm pretty sure you guys are pretty clear there's a lot of mental formations going on. Perception and consciousness. And he takes these five, what he calls khandas, five heaps of stuff, heaps of, you know, mild bundles of things. And he says, they come together and make a self. He calls them clinging khandas. So this is not like, um, this is like gluey, sticky kinds of heaps of stuff. They glue together, stick together. And once they begin to glue together, stick together, they begin to form something. I saw this movie, and this movie they were talking about samadhi, and they were uh, trying to explain how forms come together, the khandas begin to form, and they said, they used this example that these scientists were using with water, and they put music on the water, and then the water would be ripply, and depending on the kind of music, it would be different kinds of ripples in the water. Turn off the music or the wavelengths, water settles down. Just water, wavelengths. But if you put like flour, matter, little particles inside the water, what would happen is this, what would otherwise be just wavelengths would turn into shapes. They would look like people doing things. And they would show you, and it would look like all these little peoples are doing things, walking along, and all these different shapes, but nothing is actually going on. It's just matter added to water, and then there's a vibration. But it looks like, oh, something's happening. All of a sudden, there's a world, a cosmos has been formed, and there are people, shapes, things. It's not. So when the Buddha was trying to describe this to people, he's got all these regular people that are looking at him and he's trying to describe a way to disentangle them from these understandings. He used some examples to help them see. So he said, form, 
is like foam, like a lump of foam. He used a lump of foam off the ocean water. I've never seen that, really, until I went to, um, what is that place? IRC. You can go down to the ocean, and there are these giant foam bubble things that float along the sands. And I remember lump of foam. So I'm going to go over to one of them and pick it up. It does not exist. When you, the closer you get, it disappears somehow. I don't understand. I kept seeing them all over the sand. And as soon as I would get close to them, they would disappear. But it's also the same like with soap. You can get soap and you can make a lump of foam and you can look at it. And the Buddha would say, what is substantial about that foam? There's nothing substantial about it. You can look at it and you can try to make something out of it, but the glob of foam itself, it is a form, but it doesn't have anything substantial with it. So he said that any form that is just form in and of itself, whether it's related to the future, the past, the present, whether it's subtle or it's coarse, blatant, common, sublime, far, near, there's no, it's not substantial in and of itself. That can make some sense, but with a lump of foam, that makes sense. But to this body, that doesn't really make sense to me. It feels like this body has some substantialness to it. You might be thinking that too. So I looked up and said, how does the body, we know the body changes. But I mean, it really changes. We got some cells in our bodies today that we didn't have before. There are all these changes that happen, and there's never one period of time When you remain the same, you are going to change continuously. There is no, um, you can't solidify yourself in any way. So this constant changing body means that to say this form is something, it's insubstantial. Because it may be something today but it will not be the same something next year. Something is going to happen to this form, and it's going to completely change all that. You can look at feeling tones same way. He compared the feeling tones to little, fat, heavy drops of water. That is the way feeling tones are. They just drop and poop. That's it. The bubbles within the... The ground when water, all this rain we've been looking at, that that raindrops come and then they disappear. They're there and they disappear, which is the way feeling tones are. They come and go, come and go, come and go, come and go. You can see it in the stillness now. We probably got a little bit more caught in them when we first got here. But now you can feel some unpleasantness and you're not totally freaked out about it. 
There might be a little bit of a catch. Your cat is caught in it for a little bit, but it can move on much easier now. You can see this. He's compared um, perception to the mirage, like when you're driving down a highway and you see a big old huge glob of water in front of you and you get closer to it and you see it's just a mirage. It's not, there's no water there at all, but it really looks like there's water there. You can see the water there. We have perception problems all the time. We see something and we know we're sure that's what it is. And the closer we inspect it, the more we realize it's not that at all. So this perception difficulty we have. Uh, He compared mental formations, these thought processes to like a banana tree. And I'm going by the way the banana tree is explained because I've never really seen it. But it's almost to me like uh, bamboo. It's not really a tree. I think the banana trees are more like plants, but you keep trying to get to the center of it, and there is no center. You just keep unfolding layers after layers, like trying to get to the center of an onion. Just keep layers after layers. So there's no center to our mental formations. Consciousness, he said, he compared that to a magic show. So you have somebody trying to do a magic show on the side of the road. It's a trick. So how substantial, he'd asked, is a trick. I mean, yeah, it's a magic show. It might be great, but it's not substantial. It's not real what it is that you're seeing. It's just pretend. So he took these five uh, things and he said, these are not indicative of the truth of the way something is. They are momentary, insubstantial things. But we have a mind that is different than the truth of the existence we live in. We have a mind that is what I call like a, consider like a closed loop system. And in that closed loop system, it started when I was a child and it began to put some things into place. Well, I'm an angry person because I yell a lot. All right now, I'm an angry person because my parents said I was angry. You're always angry all the time. I was angry all the time. I actually, I was telling Francisco, I found out that I could be, that I would, my, my family would leave me alone if I was angry. So I began to practice getting angry. And I would walk from school and practice all my anger so that when I got home, I could call it up whenever I needed it. And then people would be like, oh, leave her alone. Just sit her over there. (laughs) Okay, I'm working with it. This is good. So why wouldn't I want to be an angry person? Of course I'm angry. 
This is my protection. I got all kinds of experience. I had fights when I was growing up. I got in trouble. I got called to the principal's office for my fighting. I was, in fact, an angry person. And all of that, the perception of it, the things I know, my thoughts about it, this person's body, feeling tones, I'd get figure out how to rev it up. So there's no question that I am not an angry person. And by the time I got into my 20s, I am a solid mass of angry person. That's it. I got to do work. I got to go to therapy. I got to go to workshops. I got to learn how to not be an angry person. But I am an angry person. It's a fact. And that mentality began to control everything I did. So everywhere I went, everywhere I saw, was controlled by these heaps of masses that would come together, glue into me. Somebody did something I didn't like. Unpleasantness would come. I began to think about it. Who am I? I'm an angry person. That's what I would be. When you come into the Dhamma, and I try to not be that, I am stuck trying to always not be what I already am. And it just is impossible. We cannot make ourselves other than who we are, but we are not that one. We are this one, the one that's right here. What I never noticed was the conditioning around how I became an angry person. I never noticed the conditioning of it. I never thought about that. We don't think about conditioning. So what ends up happening is we end up following these ideas of who we are because we cannot feel into the conditioning. But I know many of you have seen that conditioning. You see that something, this, and then, and then this happens, and then why am I like this? And then this happens, and we can begin to see the clinging, coming together, gluing together of a self. You can see it in the stillness in a way that you cannot see it otherwise. So... Some ways that I began to kind of point to this uh, scene of conditioning, what I began to understand the more with practice that the Buddha was pointing to is that I am not independently angry. If you were to ask my family, has Tuari changed? I mean, I've been practicing for 30 years. I hope something has happened. They would say, she's the same. <laughs> she acts the same way. My 
I overheard my grand, my young sister, my younger sister, talking to her granddaughter one time. This was maybe, I don't know, almost 10 years ago. And her granddaughter was 16. She said, whispering to her grandma, you know, Angie Tuweri is angry a lot. <laughs> and my sister said, yeah, but she's not mean. That's what had changed. It wasn't the anger. I wasn't mean anymore. I wasn't, everybody didn't have to pay because I was angry or I didn't like something. I wasn't this big reactive being that was just following the impulsive conditioning and conduct that somehow I had, through this practice, began to see that we are built, these little heaps of these five aggregates are actually built upon the clinging together of conditionality. These conditions come together, boom, there I am. And the more I begin to see the conditionality, the more I could see the habits. And when I saw things as habits, I could see that's not me. That is the, oh, that's like me walking home from school trying to figure out how to make myself angry. That's like me practicing being angry. That's not anger. And I could see how much my habit behavior was influencing a lot of what I did. So I want to talk about how to shift out of that, how to shift from this kind of... uh, these identities that have glued together, and we feel them so strongly, but they are all based on conditions. They are not independent of themselves. They are dependent upon things happening a certain way. And when those things happen, I am the angry one. And when they don't happen, I am this one. So when I uh, became a, I had my little ceremony. So I I lived in a world where there was no Buddhism. There was no practitioners. I mean, sometimes I look at the way we practice now, and we are just like in the godly realm. But when I first stepped on the path, there was nothing. There were no apps. There were no, there were people who taught. I mean, I know insight was there, but I didn't know anything about it. I was like, by myself, some black woman trying to do practice in meditation that I was not really sure wasn't devil worshiping. I couldn't really tell. (laughs) I didn't know. So I would practice in the closet (laughs) so that it wouldn't spill out onto my boys. (laughs) I just was in a completely different world trying to inch up on something that really believed like it was going to be freeing for me, but I didn't have a clue how I could let go of who I am because I am this. 
And so I made this ceremony and set these intentions for right intention, which is the, the, we, there are three intentions in this right intention, three thoughts or three intentions itself. This, um, this intention to do no harm, this intention to, uh, for goodwill, and this intention for, intention for renunciation. And I set this intention to do no harm, or what I said, the least amount of harm, because, you know, I'm an angry one at that time. (laughs) I set this intention for goodwill, which was to be as kind as I could be in that moment. And my intention for renunciation was not having to get my way all the time, which was a big leap for me. But that intention became the thing in front of me that I would always lean towards. And then a few years in, I mean, I was going to Seattle Insight, and Philip used to come to Seattle Insight all the time and taught all the time. And one of the things that Philip always taught was this kind of being a participant observer. And it's kind of a weird idea, I think, sometimes to think about participant observer, but actually what, it, what I begin to feel into was that I could close my eyes and I could feel my way through life. I could feel my way and I could open my eyes and I could see what was happening. This learning how to both watch what is happening. So there's a, it's like when you are an observer, there's a level of awareness and you're not entangled in it. And at the same time, as a participant, I could feel it and have agency. So here I was walking through life with these intentions for doing no harm, for being as kind as I could be, and for having this sense of letting go of having to get my way all the time. And as I'm moving through, I can feel when there's harm. I can feel when I'm kind. I can feel when I'm not kind. The whole process became part of the precepts, this undertaking, the training, feel my way through. I stopped moving through this idea that I was this person that was angry, and I started feeling my way through these intentions. I did a whole ceremony for myself, made myself a Buddhist. In case you didn't know you could do that, you can do that. Made myself. This is who I am. And then I just started feeling my way through. So someone sent a note to me, said, how can you be the angry one? You're laughing all the time. You're this one. And it's because I don't let the habit energy of conditionality push my direction. I'm not pushed or controlled by the habits that I have lived with. They still exist. I can feel them. I still have those impulses. I still get that energy. I know it. I still react and then pull back. But if I were to say who I am is pure intention. 
the intention to do no harm, the intention to be as kind as I can, and this intention to not have to get my way all the time. That's it. That's who I am. And I don't have to worry, am I going to be able to do that? I don't worry about it. I don't have to worry, will I be able to be this way next week? I don't know. I'll be in the present moment next week. And that's what I'm going to be doing. Being as kind as I can be in that moment, trying not to do any harm as best I can, and I'm not going to have to get my way. And whatever happens begins to flesh out. And I think what the Buddha was trying to say is that if we let go of these ideas that we are locked into these identified selves, I am this. If we could let go of that, we could free ourselves to be anything within any moment. If we stopped living in this conditioned, mind-driven, closed-loop this is the way it's always been. This is the way it's got to be. We can begin to let go of some of these old stories that keep following us around all the time, following us around. And the path, the way that he laid out the path, you have these intentions and you begin to move through those intentions. And this view This wiser, right view is the idea that it's not all about me. I am not a self. It is not, I am not this. I may be doing something in the moment as it is, but I may do it completely different tomorrow. I may have some bout of anger and yell at somebody. I will not yell at someone tomorrow. I do not have to live in that structure anymore. And the only real time you can begin to see the possibility of this is when it's still and quiet. Because when it's still and quiet, you can begin to find the ground that you can get from the present moment. This is where our ground is. You feel safe. I feel completely safe and protected inside this body because I know the felt sense of embodiment. I know that I have agency, not because someone told me I have agency, but I can feel my own agency in any given moment. I know I can be with difficulty. I know I can be with reactivity. I know I can be with whatever shows up because I have learned to feel into the present moment as a reality. I have learned to sense into, feel into, and know the present moment as safer than my mind's craziness about the past and the future. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need the mind to construct things for me anymore. So there's a way in which the Buddha was trying to point people to this clinging nature of these ideas that we have. So you have a form, 
there's some feeling, stuff is going on, and we begin to feel like, oh, I know what's going on. Because all that, it's like the little particles are put into the water, and it's turning into little people, little things. I know what's going on. We don't recognize that we're judging this moment off of some old habit energy. There's a story <laughs> about this guy who was selling what I, what the hood would call wolf tickets. That's what we would call them. They, he is talking mad, mad crap about the Buddha. Just mad. I mean, he is big and bold because he has a lot of followers. And he's laughing at the Buddha because the Buddha's saying there's no self. He's laughing at him like, he's so stupid. What is he talking about? Of course there's a self, and I am the person that's in charge of myself. I am responsible for everything I do. I am a self, and I am a powerful self. And we have people out there telling us the exact same thing. You can take care of everything in your life. You can be in control of your life. You can make your life whatever you want it to be, and it can be strong and powerful. And then you lose your job. And you're like freaking out because it's like, oh, I must be something wrong with me because I lost my job. This kind of energy, the, the guy was talking about how if he were around the Buddha, he would whip him up around the room. He would just, just beat him down. It would be just hilarious. So somebody said, you know, the Buddha, he's right over there. You can go and talk to him. He's like, nah, he's probably too busy, won't talk to me. Like, no, let's go. Let's get our crew. Let's go over there. You can beat him up right now. (laughs) (laughs) They all go to the Buddha. And, of course, the, the guy goes up to the Buddha and says, you know, Gotama, is it true that you tell people that there's no self, that there's no self, you know, and the Buddha says, yes. He, he doesn't say, that's what I say. He says, I say that it's impermanent, dukkha, and uh, non-self, like uh, J.D. was talking about. He so says, says, well, that's stupid. How can you say that? It's so funny, and all this crew are like, ha, ha, how can you say that? And so the Buddha said, well, are you saying that there is a self, like you're in charge, like a king would be in charge of his subjects and his people. And he's like, yes, I am the king of myself. I'm the king of my life. I can do with my life as I want to do. So the Buddha said, oh, well, then you should be able to tell some emotion. I don't want you anymore. You shouldn't show up anymore. Like, you know. Any one of us. You don't, we don't like sadness. Does anybody like sadness? Do you like disappointment? I personally hate disappointment. So if I were in charge of my body, I should be able to just say to an emotion, do not come back. I don't want you anymore. I'm not going to be disappointed ever. Is that true? Can you do that? And he's like, the guy's getting a little wimpy on his talking. The Buddha said, come on, speak up. You were talking. <laughs> you were talking so loudly before. Speak up <laughs> so we can all hear you. You know, and he's like, 
I cannot do that. And he's like, well, surely you could say to your body, you know, like, don't, I don't want to, you know, I can't remember the, the physical things, but it's like, you could say to your body that you're not going to pee, right? Just that them through peeing. I don't want to do it anymore because there's no real proper restrooms around. <laughs> it's like, speak up. Come on, tell me. You can do this. You can control this body. This is, this is the root of what the five aggregates are getting at. You cannot control those emotions. They come. You cannot control whether or not something is pleasant or unpleasant. You cannot control your thoughts from arising. And even if they arise, they are insubstantial. They come and they go. And we get trapped trying to chase after all these thoughts, all these emotions, all these uh, energies. I mean, think about all the emotional energies that have come up over the course of your time here. Think about this. Are they here right now? What happened to them? Think of all the energy you spent in that moment as if it were somehow this significant, substantial thing. And then it is no more. It rises and passes away. So we're trying to learn to begin to experience some of this stuff and not identify it as you begin to see this is some conditionality here. Can I take a step back and see the conditionality, what has come together to make this come into being? Like what particles got put in the water to make this look like little people? I used to have this uh, thing I would do to help me see the five aggregates a little better. I like sugar and cream and tea. So you got to put some stuff in the tea. But I guess you could do it with a tea bag and water if you took the cup and clowned at the cup also. But you got to think about it. At what point does something become tea, right? I got a tea bag. I've tasted the tea bag. It's not very good. (laughs) I've tasted sugar by itself. I mean, it's sweet, but who wants to just eat a spoonful of sugar? I've tried to taste the cream, but can't really do that. And there's water. And somehow or another, I begin to put this stuff in the cup, and I put the tea, the water in the cup, taste that, that's not tea. Put the tea bag and the water in the cup, not tea. Put the sugar or water in the cup, not tea. But when I get the right amount of sugar... Right amount of cream, right amount of tea, and the tea bag's been in there long enough. It's got that golden color. That's tea. And it tastes that way. In a way, that's what we're doing. We have all these little conditions that begin to work together. You got to have an unpleasant feeling. You got to have feeling tone. You got to have a little bit of thoughts about that story, unpleasant feeling tone. Got to have this body. You got to be looking and perceiving the sadness of it all. And then, boom, all of a sudden, the angry one appears. But as equally as that angry one appeared, it can fall apart. 
I think what the Buddha was trying to point to is that our liberation lies in the present moment, not in the, in the scene of the present moment. If we can participate, feel into what's happening, just begin to this fathom-long body with all of its perceptions, intellects, its sense doors, begin to feel into the present moment. We're here in the present moment. And then begin to observe, kind of have this distance where you're observing what's happening. And in the stillness and in the quiet, we can begin to have access to that observing mind, that awareness that can be aware that something's happening, but is not in it. And then we can begin to see. So I want to leave you with a poem by, it's one of my favorite poems here, by William Stafford, called The Way It Is. He says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. This is my this is my intention. I set that vow years ago, all by myself. Nobody was around, just me, trying to figure out how was I going to make myself better. Set this vow. This thread I follow goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain the thread. I have to explain my vow all the time. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. You suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You just don't ever let go of the thread. Let's sit a moment. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it does not change. People wonder about what you're pursuing. You have to explain the thread. But it's hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt or die. You suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You just don't ever let go of the thread. Thank you so much for your kind attention. We have some time for walking, and then we will. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.